Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A burlington.com. We hope you enjoy the message. All right, well, let's open our Bible to Revelation chapter 3 in the Word of God, Revelation chapter 3. And we are making our way... Uh, verse by verse through the book of Revelation. We're taking our time to uh, get there. And uh, we are studying right now the letter to the church at Philadelphia. And we're taking our time because there's so much goodness uh, in this letter. And I want to sort of uh, ring it out, if you would. Now, when we get to the next church, which is the last church, the letter at Laodicea, that's not a good church. So this is the last good church that we have to, that we uh, get to study in these letters. And there is so much truth once we get into this that I just wanted to slow down and take our time and bring some concepts and ideas that are found in this passage, bring them to light. For some, this would be new teaching. For others, it would be, um, uh, reviewed because we've looked at these things uh, before. But what I want to do is I wanted to um, just kind of frame our discussion, or not really discussion, but this message today around this idea, around this idea. How do we respond when God's promises seemingly are not answered? How do we respond when God has said in His Word this, and either He delays, and I'm talking about for a very, very long time, or from our perspective, it never even comes to pass. We're looking at the Davidic covenant, the covenant God made with David. And the covenant that God made with David is vitally important for you to understand Scripture, particularly as it relates to the second coming of Christ. We're talking about the Davidic covenant because Jesus brings it up here in this particular passage of Scripture. Now, it's interesting because you and I typically relate to Jesus through the new covenant. When we partake of the Lord's table, uh, we say... Right? This blood is the new covenant. It's the new covenant. His blood was shed for us to bring us into a new covenant relationship with God. Yet here in this, in this passage, he brings up not the new covenant, but the Davidic covenant. And we're not as familiar with the covenant that God made with David. We know about it and we know about it and we sing about it and we talk about it, particularly around Christmas time. But we're not as familiar with that covenant. But beloved, it's the Davidic covenant that really helps us to understand what takes place in the book of Revelation, really from this point going forward all the way to the end. And I hope you can kind of see that even today as we look back both in the Old Testament and in the New So here to the last good church that Jesus writes a letter to. 
as I read this letter, I ask myself these questions. He says nothing bad about this church. Now, it's not a perfect church, right? Why? Because there's only one perfect and it's not us. And it's not that church. But when Jesus is assessing this church like he did all the other, all the other churches, he says nothing bad about this, about this church. He has no words of criticism whatsoever. And therefore, I want to know more about this church because my desire is that we would be a church that ultimately, though we're not perfect, the Lord Jesus will look at us. And wouldn't it be great if He didn't have any criticism of us either? So we're taking a look at this. And Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 is where we are. And we're not even going to finish verse 7 today. So I'm just going to read verse 7. And um, we're going to look at... The Davidic covenant because it's mentioned here in this particular passage of scripture. Revelation chapter 3 verse 7. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One. And we said that was a title. The true one. And that's another title for Christ. Same as in Revelation chapter 1. He's the living one. All three are titles for Jesus. The living one, the holy one, and the true one. All titles for Jesus. But notice what he says here. The one who has the key of David. Who opens and no one will close. And who closes and no one will Open. I just want to review what we did last week briefly so that we can kind of get a run and start to where we want to go uh, today. You will remember in our time uh, last week, we looked in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16, and we said this, that David wanted to build a house for the Lord. He's living in this cedar house, this mansion, very, very nice house. And God was still in the ark. He was still in a mobile uh, moving container, uh, if you will, the ark of the covenant. And David's desire was to build a temple for God. And God comes and he says, I never asked you to build me a temple. But he says that your heart is in the right place. It's good, basically, is what he said. Remember, David is a man after God's own heart. And so the Lord declared to David through Nathan, the prophet, that the Lord himself will make a house for you. And when your time comes and you rest with your fathers, David says, I mean, the Lord says to David, I will raise up after you your descendants who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long, church? Forever. Forever. He says, I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But look at verse 15. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. 
your house and your kingdom will endure before me. How long? And your throne will be established. How long? The Lord said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn an oath to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring. How long? And build your throne for all generations. All generations. This gets into Psalm uh, 89. Um, but the, the, remember, we looked at Psalm 89 last week because Psalm 89 is a description of the covenant that God made with David. It gives us more information. So notice Psalm 89 there. Uh, this is the verse from Psalm 89. It repeats some things from 2 Samuel chapter 7. It brings in some new things uh, as well. But Ezra, uh, Ethan the Ezraite in Psalm 89 is reminding us and God of all of His promises. This is what the Lord said. The Lord said, I will do this in Psalm 89 verse 3 and 4. And he said that he would establish his offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. He said in Psalm 89, you once spoke in a vision to your faithful ones and said, I have granted help to a warrior. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. I have anointed him with my sacred oil. My hand will always be with him and my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not oppress him. The wicked will not afflict him. I will crush his foes before him and strike those who hate him. Verse 24, my faithfulness and love will be with him. And through my name, his horn will be exalted. Verse 25, I will extend his power to the sea and his right hand to the rivers. He will call to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. I will always preserve my faithful love for him and my covenant with him will endure. So over and over and over, he says, my covenant with him will endure. I will establish his line. How long? Verse 29. Psalm 89, 29. I will establish his line forever. His throne as long as heaven lasts. How long is that? Forever. I mean, you know, God is as, as clearly as he can saying that I will establish it. How long? Verse 33. But I will not withdraw my faithful love from him or betray my faithfulness. Now look at verse 34. I will not violate my covenant or change what my lips have said. Once and for all, I have sworn an oath by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring, his offspring will continue forever. His throne, like the sun before me, like the moon, established forever, a faithful witness in the sky. All of these things are the promises that are the assurances that God gave David in the Davidic covenant. Now, it's interesting because when we get to the end of Psalm 89, as we looked at last week, the psalmist says, Okay, Lord, then I have a couple of questions. Have you ever been there? Uh, Lord... I know that you said you would never leave me or forsake me. 
But I have a couple of questions. Lord, I know that you said this. Lord, I know that. Right? Anybody ever struggle with the promises of God? Sometimes we struggle with the promises of God and it's been like, oh, I don't know, a day. <laughs> right? We've, we've prayed and we hadn't got the answer in an hour. Where are you, God? Right? Sometimes a little bit longer. Sometimes a little bit longer. Here's what the psalmist says. How long, O Lord, will you hide forever? Will your anger keep burning like fire? This is Psalm 89, verse 46. Look at what he says. Lord, where are the former acts of your faithful love that you swore to David in your faithfulness? In other words, the psalmist is reminding God recorded for us in the pages of Scripture of the things that God promised David. And yet, as we saw in the beginning of this uh, psalm, at the title and who wrote it, it's a teaching psalm, a mascal uh, from Ethan the Ezraite. The word Ezraite gives us some time frame into when this psalm was written. The temple had been destroyed. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The people had been carried off into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They have now returned to Jerusalem and they had begun various projects throughout the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the city through Nehemiah and Ezra and beginning the process of rebuilding the temple. And as Ethan looks out and he's reminded of the promises of God, he says, How long, Lord? How long? God, this is what you promised. And it doesn't look like it's coming to pass. How long, Lord? How long? It's interesting to note that though God promised that David's throne would be established forever, that no one has sat on David's throne since Zedekiah was king. Zedekiah was king. He became king at an early age in his 20s. And Zedekiah was king when the Babylonians came in and ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed everything before carrying them off in the Babylonian captivity. And Zedekiah was forced to watch his sons brutally murdered. And then they plucked out his eyes. So the last thing that he would see was his sons being murdered and then carried him off into Babylonian captivity. From then until now, no one has rightfully or legitimately sat on David's throne. From 586 B.C., this is 2017 A.D. So you go back 2017 and then you go back another 586 years. From then until now, no one has sat on on David's throne. What about Herod's? They were usurpers of the throne. They weren't from the line of Judah. I mean, they weren't from the line of David. 
There were not David's descendants. So how can the Lord promise that David's temple, his throne would be established forever, and yet for 2,500 years nearly, 2,500 years, no one has sat on David's throne? Well, the liberal theologians, they would say that it isn't going to come true. It hasn't happened. God hasn't done it. And therefore, you need to find another interpretation. You need to just kind of disregard that Bible altogether would be what the liberal theologians would tell us. And we would come back and we would say, no, it hasn't happened the way that we think it ought to happen or it hasn't happened yet. But beloved, listen to me. Either this is true... And it is, it has happened, it will happen, and will be exactly like God said, or you might as well throw your Bible away. Because if one part of the Bible proves false, then the trustworthiness of all of it goes out the window. And what we're going to see is, is we're going to see that though no one is sitting there now, Jesus said that it would be the case. In fact, He said in Luke chapter 21 verse 24, He's speaking of the time. He says, how long will David's throne be uh, ransacked? How long will no one sit there? Jesus said this, they'll be killed by the sword and be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. That happened at the Babylonian captivity. Now how long will Jerusalem be trampled by the Gentiles? He says, look here, until what? The times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled. The time of the Gentiles began in 586 B.C. The time of the Gentiles was taking place when Jesus was born. The time of the Gentiles was when Jesus died on the cross. The time of the Gentiles was when Jesus was raised again. The time of the Gentiles was when Jesus ascended into heaven. It's the time of the Gentiles when the church was established. We ourselves right now are living in the time of the Gentiles. How long will this happen until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled? Are fulfilled. That's the times in which we live. We live now in the times of the Gentiles. Now, go ahead and give you a snapshot. Move ahead just a little bit, and what's going to happen is, is in Revelation chapter 6 through 18, the Antichrist is going to be the last Gentile leader. Revelation 19, the King Jesus comes to occupy His throne. Revelation 20, He reigns and rules. It will be the time of the Gentiles from 586 B.C. until Jesus comes and takes His rightful place on the throne of David. Well, how do we know that Jesus is going to be the one? Well, here's your verse from our Christmas stories. Very familiar with it. Wonderful prophecies from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6, for unto us a child will be, for a child will be born for us, or unto us a child will be born, a son will be given to us. And that is all that happened in the first coming. That's all. 
Everything else that we're going to read relates specifically to the second coming and the return of Christ. Because notice what it says. And the government will be on his shoulders. Has that happened yet? Not yet. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now look at this. The dominion will be vast and His prosperity will never end. Look at this. He will reign on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. All of that are second coming prophecies. So when you read your Christmas story and you read from Isaiah chapter 9, only the first part happened on earth when Christ came the first time and the rest will be fulfilled when Christ comes the second time. Well, how do I know it's going to happen that way? Well, look at what it says. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies will accomplish this. Beloved, if that's what is contingent for this prophecy to be fulfilled, then I think we're in pretty good shape because is God not able to do it? Oh, He he absolutely is able to, uh, to do it. So when we come to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we see something interesting. And you might want to look at this uh, in your Bible. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew writes to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that He is the coming King. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1 begins um, <clears throat> in an interesting way. It begins in an interesting way because... For Jesus to be the Messiah, He has to be, and the one who's going to occupy the throne, He has to be of the Son of David. And so what Matthew does in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 is he says that this is an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now notice what he does here. If we're going to give a genealogy, we're going to go, either we're going to start with who we are, Right? And we're going to work back in my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my mother, my great-grandmother, my mother's side, dad's side. We're going to start and go back that way. Or we're going to go back as far as we can go and come forward. Matthew doesn't go all the way back to Abraham, which is the start of the Jews. He goes back and he mentions here, he says, this is an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now look at this. He switches the order. We would be thinking he would start with the son of Abraham and come to the son of David, which is what he does in his genealogy. But in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, he says the account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, remember that Abraham is the father of the Jews. David was a Jew. So he is not just going back to David. He's going back to the start of the Abrahamic covenant when God chose Abram to be the father of the nation who would ultimately become the Jewish people. So Matthew, he switches the order because why? He's trying to emphasize that Jesus Christ is the son of David and therefore the rightful heir on the throne. 
In fact, he traces the genealogy in verse 2. He begins with Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah, all the way down to verse 6. And Jesse fathered King David. So even in the genealogy, he starts with Abraham and comes forward. But in, in chapter 1, verse 1, he begins with the son of David. Because he wants to emphasize that Jesus is the rightful heir on the throne. All the way down in verse 16. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. Who is called the Christ. So Matthew shows us that Jesus is the rightful heir. Now, that's the reason why. When Jesus went through, what did they say? Have mercy on us, King Jesus. Right? The demons, King Jesus, Son of the Most High. But what did they say? Have mercy on us, Son of David. They didn't say sons of David. They recognized that Jesus was the son of David, the rightful heir uh, on the throne. And we see this in, in Luke's account of the story as well. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. So it's important. Now you see why it's important that he mentions of the house of David. Why? Because Mary had to be of the house of David, Joseph, just so there were no questions whatsoever for Jesus to be legitimate heir uh, to the throne. Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now listen, you will conceive, verse 31 to 33, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Now notice what it says about Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him what? The throne of his father David. He'll give him the throne of his father David. So if there's any question about who Jesus is, then he will be, he will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now look at this. And his kingdom will what? In other words, the same promises that God gave to David, he is saying, are going to ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. Will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. But Jesus came... And Jesus lived and Jesus died, never occupying the throne of David. No wonder the Jewish people would look at Jesus and say, you're not the Messiah. No wonder the, G- the people look at Jesus and they would examine his life and say, How can you be? You might be of the son of David, but look at you. 
He rode in on a donkey. He didn't come in victorious. He never fought a victorious battle. He never assailed the throne. He never removed Herod from power. No wonder they rejected Him. When they read all the promises in the book of Isaiah, all the promises in 2 Samuel, all the promises in the Old Testament about this one will come and reign and rule forever. Jesus did none of that. In fact, Psalm 2, right? The, the nations are in an uproar and the people are saying vain things and casting off their bounds to God and they're putting their thumb to the nose to the to the things that which God says why because we are living in the time of the gentiles but beloved it won't always be that way will it it won't always be that way so how is this going to work Well, when you come to Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we're going to get there. We're going to study the letters of seven churches, and then John's going to be called up to heaven. And we come to Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. It says some things that we need to know about or raise some questions. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. So John is now caught up into heaven. And I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And we're going to study this in depth when we, when we get there. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and even to look at it. And if this scroll, the title deed of the earth, this scroll, whatever it is, if it's not opened and in it, the judgments are not poured out because when the opening of the scroll is when Revelation 6 through 18 happens, then, then David's throne will not be occupied. No one will reign and rule. Satan will remain in power and the world will be under his dominion and curse forever. No wonder when John sees that there's no one in heaven, so no one who's gone on and died before us is worthy to open the scroll, and there's no one alive on the earth is able to open the scroll, or even to look at it, or under the earth. No one has died. There's no one in power anywhere. No one who has ever lived who is worthy. The Bible says that John wept And he says, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, now look at this. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. Now, now I'm confused. Because what's a root? A root is, right, is in the ground, and when the seed breaks, right, the roots dig deep, and then the, right, it's kind of like a, the vine and the branches. So, David's descendant will sit on the throne. But Jesus is the root of David, which means that from Him springs forth the Davidic covenant. 
So whoever this king is that's going to sit on the throne, and we know it to be Jesus, is going to be the root of David. So, in other words, he's going to spring out of David. He's going to spring out of David. Um, but he's also going to be before David because, right? Because from the root comes this one. The, the root of David, not the fruit of David. Is Jesus the fruit of David or the root of David? And the answer is, well, in this case, he's the root. So if we can just figure out who this root is and what this is about, and how is it that Jesus is the root of David, and how is it can he be the descendant, the fruit of David, the offspring of David? How, how, how is all this, how does this work? You see the question? One who's going to sit upon the throne will come through the line of David. And yet, David looks back and says, and the Bible says in Revelation that, do not weep, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and the lucid seals. Well, who is the root of David? If you go all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, not the last thing that Jesus says, but the second to the last thing that Jesus says is found in verse 16. Look at what he says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. So who is, who is the root of David? Jesus. Why? Because the Bible says clearly, I am the root of David. And he also says, I'm not only the root of David, but I'm the fruit of David. I'm from the lineage of David. So Jesus is saying, before David was, I am. And after David was, I am. And the the Davidic covenant comes out of the root and comes to David and is passed on through the fruit. And I am both the root and the fruit. I am the beginning and the end. I am, right, the Davidic covenant springs from me and is, and I'll fulfill it as well. You know, no, no wonder the psalmist asked this, wrote this in Psalm 110.1, prophesying about what would happen. This is the declaration of the Lord. Notice capital L-O, capital O, capital R, capital D. That means Yahweh. That's God's personal covenant name. The Lord said to my Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that's Adonai. So Yahweh says to Adonai. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the Father says to the Son, stay here and I'm going to make your enemies right, your footstool and then you will go and reign. So where's Jesus right now? Yep, He lives in my heart. Christ knew the hope of glory. But He's also at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because has His enemies been made His footstool yet? 
Well, through the cross, He overcame death, hell, and the grave. But has it become the reality practically yet? No, not yet. So no wonder when Jesus was on the earth and the Pharisees came to Him and were asking Him a lot of questions, He says, hey... Well, I have a question for you who've rejected me as the Messiah. I have a question for you. Look at the question. He asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Then he reminds him of Psalm 110.1. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord... How then can he be a son? So he's, and Jesus is saying, hey, if David calls him Lord, how is this one going to be the Lord going to be his son? How is this going to, how is this going to work? And no one was able to answer him at all. Now look at this. And from that day forward, no one dared to question him anymore how does this happen well basically it it happens like this Jesus humbled himself on the cross he was God fully God 100% God Revelation chapter 22 says that Jesus is saying the Davidic covenant springs from me. Jesus humbles himself, takes on the form of a man. He becomes obedient to the point of death, overcomes death on the grave, is raised again, ascended into heaven. And he will come and not only is he going to be the root of David, but he's going to be the descendant of David, the offspring of David. And he's going to reign and rule. In other words, listen to me, church. It truly is all about Jesus. It truly is all about Jesus so we come to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, right to the angel in the church of Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David. Why does He have the key of David? Because Jesus is the root of David. Jesus is the fruit of David. And to have the key means that He has the authority and He has the power to use that key to do whatever it is He wants or needs to do. In the Bible, key means authority, access, power, and Jesus holds key. Now you say, now wait a minute. Now I thought Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom to Peter. Well, he did, but not permanently and totally. It's like me giving the keys to the car to Eli. I'm not giving the car, right? I'm just giving him access to drive the car and fill it up with gas and bring it home. Right? But ultimately, it belongs to who? It belongs to me. Ultimately, it belongs. So let's be clear. Peter does not have the key. Let's be clear. Mary does not have the key. 
And therefore, just to lay it out plainly, Peter is not the first pope. He is not sent from there, as the Catholic Church says. And neither should we be praying to Mary because she doesn't have access to the key. Only Jesus, present tense, has the key of David. And with that key, He opens and no one will close. Or He closes and no one opens. Because Jesus has the key. He's the root of David. And He's the fruit of David. And now we see that He has the key. And notice what it says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David. What does He say? Oh, we have great, great promises when we look at what He says. And we'll have to get there next week because we are out of time for today. Listen, beloved. It truly is all about Jesus. And it's not He was the heir apparent to David's throne. He is. And He will come. We've got miles and miles to go. And we've got wonderful promises found even in this letter ahead. But if you don't understand the weight of the key of David who has, who has the authority and power and access to open door and close the door. Listen, the promises will fall on deaf ears. Not only found in this letter, but found it, you have to understand the Davidic covenant to understand the purpose of the things going on in the tribulation and the purpose of the things that come. And that's why it's vital that we look at these things and understand that and hope and pray that God lodges it within our hearts. So what should we do when it seems as if the promises of God are delayed or have failed. Well, we should trust. We should pray. We should walk with God and believe that His promises will indeed come to pass and they will come to pass always. We're going to pray and we're going to sing this song and it's a new song. So if you just stand and look at it, you'll be fine. Uh, but I want you to read the words and I want you to understand because it's great confidence and great assurance that God is a God of His Word. And just like it doesn't always make sense, how can Jesus be the root and the fruit? And just like it doesn't make sense in God's time, it doesn't make sense. We can trust Him always. Heavenly Father, thank You for the truths of Your Word and thank You for the promise of Your revelation. Lord, we are so glad that all the promises of the Bible are yes and amen in Jesus. We are thankful that, God, You are a man of Your Word. You are a God of Your Word. More than a man, a God of Your Word. And when You say it, it will come to pass. And it will come to pass always. Encourage us now um, to be reminded of this truth even as we are awaiting answered prayers in our own life. Remind us again of this truth as we're looking around and seeing the instability of our world. And remind us of this truth 
as lost people come to faith in Christ and saved people grow in their relationship with Christ. And Lord, we're going to rejoice and be glad and trust you always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.